Welcome to On The Rise, a podcast about female college tennis players on the way up. On The Rise serves compelling stories and unique angles in women's college tennis. This is your host, Perry Shinen. In this episode of On The Rise, I will be speaking with USC senior Angela Kulikov, who played number one singles and doubles for the Trojans and reached the semifinal round of the 2019 NCAA Doubles Championship. Led by head coach Allison Swain and assistant coach Rachel Manassi, Angela achieved a top 15 national singles ranking and was recently awarded the Arthur Ashe Junior Leadership and Sportsmanship Award for her philanthropic work as a female athlete, both on and off the tennis court. Welcome to On The Rise Podcast. This is your host, Perry, and I'm joined today by USC's Angela Kulikov. How are you? I'm doing great, Perry. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, I want to kind of dive right into it and ask the first question, which is, what next? What are you doing next? Because you are a senior. Yeah, it's a great question. So I was lucky enough. um, Well, I wouldn't say lucky enough. I was unlucky enough to go through COVID, but lucky enough to get to... uh, find the good in that and getting a fifth year. So I was actually able to leave USC with two degrees. So I finished my undergrad in cognitive science, and then I was able to complete my master's in applied psychology, which was fantastic for me and even more fantastic for my parents who didn't have to pay for it. So, you know, the the plan, I think, since juniors was always to go pro. I struggled with a few injuries later in my junior career where that wasn't looking like a feasible option. But You know, I I did a lot of good work, and I think my later college years, um, that really paid off, and that opportunity started to look a bit more possible for me. So uh, the Pro Tour is is the the next step. So exciting. And so how is that work over the summer? Are you training now, or are you playing tournaments as well? Yeah, so right now I'm just training. Um, Unfortunately, I had a little bit of a a back injury, um, actually on Christmas morning. So it was... One of those things where I feel like I really managed to make the most out of COVID and all its negativity just in having that opportunity to take a step back from competing and actually have a chance to work on those pieces of my game that you don't really have an opportunity to work on when you're, you know, in the heat of either your own competition or or college match season. Um, And I felt like I was able to, you know, really fill some holes and, and make a lot of jumps, but probably went a little bit too far, trained a little bit too much, and uh, ended up hurting my back at the end, so I didn't get the chance to really test it out during the college season. But um, yeah, so right now I'm, I'm almost back to 100%. Um, I'm working with some really awesome doctors and PTs who are doing great things for me. Um, so I'm hoping in the next month or two I'll be back up to 100%, and then we'll, we'll jump on tour. Well, so many of us dream of that moment when we really do go for it. And what an amazing opportunity. So it could not have been easy when you had this season-ending injury in your back. How did you maintain your mental health during that time? It was difficult. I really think this year has has tested me in um, more ways than any other year have. Even, you know, we all joke about 2020 being the worst year ever. For me, it's honestly been 2021. Um, and there's some, I've had some family health crises come up. Um, obviously, the injury especially how complicated it seemed. There was a while where we couldn't seem to put a finger on what actually happened um, because all my scans were coming back clean. Uh, obviously, losing my, my last college season, you know, it was disappointing enough as a senior to feel like I didn't have an opportunity to end my college career the way I wanted to. And I was also starting to find some success. I was up to, you know, top 15 in the rankings in singles. Um, I was doing well in doubles and, you know, being an all I've been an All-American in doubles, but being an All-American in singles was something that, 
uh, I definitely wanted to do and was on track to doing, but got cut short. So yeah, it was, it was definitely disappointing to miss out on that. What seemed like for a second time, difficult just to deal with the, the nitty gritty of, of having an injury in general. You know, when you're so used to having this regimented schedule and having this, you know, entire life that's really built around how can I make myself a better tennis player today and not having that option uh, is obviously something that's difficult to deal with. And, um, you know, there were definitely some some dark days in there where, you know, it just felt like I had no reason to get up in the morning because, you know, what am I going to do today? But, um, yeah, I think there was a lot of growth that I was able to to gain from that, both as a person and as a tennis player. And I think it's also nice every once in a while to sort of have things that remind you how, how lucky you are to have a passion and to have something that you love enough that, you know, you're excited to wake up every morning. So not something I really wanted for as long as I've had to deal with it. But um, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a nice reminder to see how lucky and how fortunate I am that um you know, I, I do have tennis and I do have something. Right. And I mean, especially the part about just getting up in the morning every day with that goal. And really, I mean, for me, moving past my competitive tennis career, I have, you know, I've, I work a full time job now, but I still athletically feel like there is that void. And so I totally know what you mean. And I couldn't even imagine what it felt like with really, you are now going pro and you're now doing this thing. And so to have, you know, that setback physically could not have been easy. Yeah, definitely wasn't. But, um, you know, even through the difficulty, you know, today's my, my last training day of the week. So I'm absolutely thrashed and exhausted right now. And I think, though, because of that, it makes this part that much more enjoyable because, you know, on a, on a normal day, if I hadn't gotten hurt, I'd be complaining how sore my legs feel and how just tired and sick I feel right now. But when I compare it to how awful I felt, you know, lying in bed as much as that's all I want to do, I realized I would have killed for this and I still will kill for this. And um, so, yeah, it, it just makes you really um, appreciate it that much more. And I think the trick is being able to hold on to that after that wears off. Absolutely. And not to dwell on the injury, but you did mention your off-court endeavors and really what you did to fill this new part of your identity. So could you go into that a little? For sure. Yeah. You know, I... I feel like for a lot of high-level athletes, um, as I mentioned before, our identity becomes so wrapped up and enveloped in just our sport. And, uh, you know, it's something that I feel like non-athletes kind of look down upon. But if you actually take a look at what our schedule is, if you look at how much we invest and um, how much time goes into it, it's it's kind of hard to imagine that you can cultivate more identities besides you know, I'm a tennis player. Um, but, you know, I think that was one of the things that college was really great for, for me, is, you know, obviously the education. And um, I wouldn't say I got the greatest social experience. I was a bit of a dork that kind of just played tennis and went to the weight room and studied and went to bed. Same. But, <laughs> right, it's nothing wrong with that. I actually, I still enjoyed myself. You love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, for me, I think it just, it really helped me find a few new passions that I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have discovered um, without it. So, you know, my, my undergrad, I said, was cognitive science, which is essentially a glorified psychology major, but has some additions in philosophy and linguistics. And, you know, next to tennis, I would say psychology and philosophy would be my next probably biggest passion. So I did a lot of reading. You know, I think sometimes when you're in the middle of season and you have a reading, it's a lot easier to just, you know, skim the chapter. And I actually had an opportunity to really sit and actually learn for once, you know, actually do what I'm supposed to be doing because I had the time afforded to me. So yeah, I think it was just, it was a great thing for me to 
have to experience what the world looks like when there isn't tennis every day and you're not just a kid. You know, I'm, I'm 23. I'm supposed to be out in the real world now. I mean, I am in the real world. I still consider tennis to be a kind of a, a special world. But um, yeah, I think it was just good for me to experience that and see, you know, I, I will be okay if I don't have tennis. I do have other things that, that I enjoy. I have other things that give me a reason to wake up in the morning. But at the same time, tennis is my favorite thing to wake up for in the morning. So I have that appreciation. And then I, I don't even want to minimize it to a fallback, but it was good for me to see you know, I would be okay. I'm not just a tennis player. Um, this isn't the only thing I have going for me in my life. There are other things that I can pour into. And um, I think that helps on both sides. I think that will make me a better tennis player and that'll make me a better um, human or person in, in general as well. Well, you're obviously so well-rounded. And even before you studied this major, I feel like you are very well-rounded and we're set for success. So <laughs> you were gonna be you were gonna be fine either way. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my parents did a good job. <laughs> and there's also something for those of us who don't know athletically that you're also into that's not tennis. Could you tell us a little bit about it? That's right, yeah. I, I can't believe I forgot that. So um I have a, an additional Instagram account or persona or brand or whatever you want to call it. It's titled The QB Chick. And really the story there is I have a younger brother. He is 15 years old now. Um, and this actually goes back to those those first couple injuries when I was a junior. So I was about 16, 17. And because I was out and not able to compete in anything, I started spending my time coaching him. And, uh, you know, I noticed he had an arm. He didn't really have a sport that he was playing yet. Um, when I was younger or, you know, more pre-tennis, I was definitely a tomboy. And so, you know, I was absolutely living vicariously through my, my younger brother. Um, so I started coaching him and in order to coach him to be a quarterback, I had to learn it myself. So, you know, I, I knew as much as you can learn from recess, but I, I didn't know the real technique or, or fundamentals or anything like that. So I sort of just started teaching myself, honestly, through Instagram, through YouTube. I'd, I'd follow all these youth football coaches and pick up skills from them. And, you know, a lot of it actually does kind of translate to tennis as well. So um, I had to learn what I was going to teach him, which meant that we were both essentially learning a new sport. And I was pretty good myself. So one day, another coach, his name is Steve Clayman, who's just been a, an absolute godsend to our family and to my brother, um, noticed us at Burbank High School just throwing. And it was, you know, it's obviously an interesting dynamic. You have this like 11-year-old boy being coached by his big sister. What's going on? So he came over, started working with, with Chris after that, but he he filmed like a just a cute video, something you'd see on TikTok, obviously that didn't exist then, and put it together and put it on Instagram. And he had no followers at the time, and it still generated like 30,000 views within a day. And I kind of realized, huh, people are into this. So I had some other videos just from messing around, started throwing those up, and then you know, same thing. People were interested. Um, there was a few videos that um, started being reposted by bigger accounts. Um, I remember the first time I went viral was definitely an interesting experience because that was that was in the millions at that point because, you know, it's the whole train where it just continues to be reposted by the next account. So, um, yeah, you know, I just I kept doing it. In the beginning, it was just a kind of stupid, fun hobby I did on the side. And then I think as I continued, I started to recognize that there was actually an opportunity to sort of do good with that account and seeing the impact I was having, you know, on female athletes. I, I would get messages sometimes from 
you know, younger grade school girls telling me how they want to try out for their school's football team now because they saw what I could do or or saying they, they wanted to meet or, you know, anything like that it was was just a really um, cool thing for me and really helped me see that there's there is a way to actually make good come from what was initially just a, a silly account. Wow. I mean, wow. It's <laughs> truly amazing. And for for a fellow woman in sport who's trying to grow the world of women in sport, that is amazing. That's truly amazing and so exciting. I love the account, by the way. I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it was it was definitely uh, an accidental gift, I'd say. I've gotten a lot of opportunities from it, and I've found a lot of opportunities to help and, and motivate others through it. There's nothing cooler than, than getting a DM from an eight-year-old who was never, who maybe never was going to play a sport, who now off of a funny video of me hitting a target from 10 yards out is going to try out, you know, for her school's football team. I, I feel like it, it took me a very long time to realize you, you don't need to have a mega platform to, to try and make an impact. And uh, I feel like this was the, the way that I was able to learn that lesson. You know, if, if you can reach even a couple people, it's worth it. And if you can have fun doing it, even better. <laughs> For sure. So I need to ask the QB chick herself, where do you think the future of women in football is? <laughs> I mean, we're heading in the right direction. We had Sarah Fuller playing on a power five, actually scoring points. I mean, how many men haven't scored? <laughs> um, but no, I, you know, look, I really think the more representation we have, the lower the barrier to entry will be. I think that there's a lot more interest being developed now thanks to opportunities like that was given to um that were given to sarah um you know i i understand that there are physical limitations that are involved when we're talking about females playing a sport as aggressive and physical as as football is you know like i'm absolutely an advocate for women in sports but i'm i'm not naive to the fact that there are serious physical risks that are involved that are simply you know a product objectively of our anatomy but to see someone playing a position as physical as safety is, is absolutely incredible. So, you know, I think the more people who are able to break through like that, the more people that see that, the more people that give it a try, the more people that catch that football bug like I did, the sky's the limit. You know, I, I just encourage anyone who has that interest to go for it and not to be derailed by any social stigma about what it means for a female to play football. You know, we're we're doing it. You know, we're, we're coaching now, we're playing now. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what comes next. So exciting. And, you know, really looking more into the identity part of sport at USC, how did you feel that athletes were treated at the campus? To be honest, it's tough to say as a tennis player, you know, I if I were a football player, I might have a few more stories about people trying to take a fake selfie with me or, you know, trying to sit next to me in a, in a classroom. Um, as far as how we're treated by other students or professors, I don't think it was any different. But as far as how many resources we were given as athletes, I mean, it's it's unbelievable, especially now that I, I'm, I'm gone or I finished and I don't have them anymore, to look back and think how many things were given to me that the regular student does have to worry about is phenomenal. I mean, obviously, it's already a huge deal that I'm on a full ride and I'm not paying tuition, but... You know, things as simple as my access to tutors from our academic support staff, uh, having my books given to me instead of having to wait in line and dropping $1,000 on my textbooks for classes I may or may not be taking, priority registration. We have a breakfast spot for the athletes called Little Galen that 
I feel like nine out of 10 athletes, when you ask them, what are you going to miss most, say it's little Galen breakfast. Um, but you know, all those little things add up and it's, it's amazing how spoiled we are and it's amazing how much we don't recognize and appreciate it while we're in school. So I think COVID, because everything shut down so quick, made that transition weirdly seem easier because it was almost like everybody lost it. But yeah, if I had to go from getting as much as I was to just, you know, you're gone, um, that would have been tougher. Actually, it's a funny story. Um, the day after we came back from NCAAs, I tried to, I was just going to bring a friend and hit on our rec courts because we didn't have access to our team courts um, because of COVID. They, they kind of restricted our, our fingerprint access. And I tried to sign up to use the courts and I couldn't. I walked over to the manager and I asked, you know, I tried to log in online. Why won't it let me in? He asked me, Are, did you graduate? And I said, yeah, I, I did. And he goes, well, you don't have access anymore. And it was just such a, it, it was one of those moments where you're like, wow, less than 24 hours ago, I competed for this school. You know, my face is plastered on a giant poster right over there. And I'm denied access to using the courts the very next day. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it was a funny moment. You know, it, it was a little sad. And it was definitely, I, I had this walk of shame home of, wow, that's it. You're irrelevant. But um, I'm just now more reveling in how lucky I was and how many things I was given rather than, oh no, it's all gone. <laughs> but it was, it was an interesting moment for sure. Wow. And leaving college, I feel in a way it's almost like heartbreak because it was this thing that was a part of your life that regardless of whether or not you competed on any field, it's gone. And I mean, going into the real world is something that is scary and it's real and it feels like a little bit lonely at first, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, it was definitely a bit of this shock. You know, my, my team, today's Friday. And, uh, you know, I obviously still have very close friends on the team. And, you know, I'll text one of them, are you free? And they'll say, oh, I have a, we have a Zoom call. And like forgetting, oh my God, like the team Zoom calls we used to do on Friday. I, I should know better. There's all those pieces that just seemed so major, you know, even, even the drama of it, that when you're in it seems like, God, this is so horrible. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then now that I'm removed from it, I'm like, seriously, you thought that was the worst thing that ever happened. But, you know, we laugh at it, but when you're in it, it's, it really does fully encompass you into it. You know, especially for me, I, I really did love college tennis. I definitely had my fair share of adversities and, and things I wish that went differently. But um, for sure, going from that being the biggest thing in my life to you can't even use the rec courts is there's there's a moment like there's a there's a pause of, oh, boy, <laughs> like, OK, real world now. Um, but it's I think everything is relative. And I think the way I was invested into that, it felt like the real world anyway. And I think it really did help prepare me for the real world now. So I'm, I'm lucky I had that experience. And did you get closer with your teammates as the years wore on? For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we there were a lot of changes during the, the time I was there. Um, I was the coaches that recruited me, Richard Gallion and Wes Knott, were only there through my freshman year. And then Allison Swain came in um, and, and is still there. And then obviously there were players that left as a result. There were players that transferred in. Um, so I was on a team that actually looked pretty different each each year. But you know, I think there's there's just a bond that naturally transpires when you're as invested in, in something um, like college tennis and at a school like USC that has so much pride in its athletics. So, yeah, the more the more time I spent, for sure, the closer we got. But I think also the more um, experiences went through maybe would have been a, a better measure of, of how close I was to my teammates. So, you know, I'm happy with how that went. Right. And 
I mean, for so many of us, we had never been on a team, perhaps if college players didn't play high school tennis, and they really had never been in a team element. And could you talk a little bit about the idea of, of this tension between the individual and the team atmosphere and really how, how you navigated that at first? Kind of as a follow-up question to that, when did you learn to become a friend to your teammates? <laughs> so it's a great question because you're absolutely right. Tennis is an individual sport and, to be honest, is a sport that I think does require a certain amount of selfishness in order to ascend to the top because when it's always you against 127 other people, there's going to be decisions you have to make. I mean, obviously, you hope that the integrity maintains and that you can still be a good human within that, but there are times you, you have to say no to a doubles partner. You have to say no to a practice partner because you can get a better one. So for sure, that transition between 10, 15 years playing an individual sport to now you play for USC, you don't play for Angelo Kulikov, is is a transition. Um, for myself personally, I think it was a little easier because, as I mentioned, I was so excited to be on a team. I mean, this was something I wanted. You know, when I was seven, I wrote my parents a letter begging them to let me switch to soccer, you know, and we stuck with tennis and it, it worked out. It was probably the right call, but um, it was one of those things where that made it easier for me. And I'm really lucky and my coaches are really lucky that 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 was the case but it isn't the case for everyone I'd say the difficulty for me came more from not being able to empathize then with people who were more traditionally uh, you know as you mentioned not transitioning as smoothly as I did because in my mind it was how, how can you not think of the team first how can you not you know put your teammates put the goals and the intentions of the team before your own and it wasn't I think until I was an upperclassman that it finally clicked. Well, yeah, because, you know, they spent the majority of their life that way. How can you expect them to have that skill? Um, and that's where I think my role as uh, a captain kind of showed up was it was my job to really help them navigate that. So, you know, even with that being the case, there is still an individual aspect to college tennis. You know, you're you're fighting for a lineup spot. Like we can all sit here and talk about how you get the same amount of points playing one or six, but of course you want to play one. You know, every person who's who's on that team wants to play number one and is probably going to be unhappy if they're not playing number one. You're obviously also fighting for things like All-American status, for an individual ranking, for acceptance into NCAAs. And, you know, realistically, those only happen if you're playing top of the lineup. You know, if you're not playing number one or number two, you're not going to have the opportunity with the way the ranking system works to to compete at that level. So, I don't know. I think it's it's something that, develops with time and experience and maturity as well. And I think eventually, you know, I think teams that are more successful might have an easier route to this just because when your team is doing well, you kind of forget. And it's, it's a little easier to jump into, well, but, the, but the team is, is doing so great. How can I help? Versus when you're on a struggling team where it becomes, well, you know, the team's not looking too hot. At least I want to try and help myself. But I think it's an important skill, if we want to call it that, that recruits should be thinking about and honestly trying to develop before they get to school. Um, and I think it's something, again, that translates into the real world because it's, you know, the same deal. There's there's an element in the real world if I'm working for a corporation of needing to look out for myself, right? I want to climb my way through the, the, the pecking order in whatever company I'm working for. But if you're not a team player, if you don't understand how to look at the bigger picture and look at the bigger vested interests, you know, it's, it's going to hold you back. And I think mastery in that is when you recognize that each of them sort of feed off of each other. So being a better team player made me a better individual player, which made me a better team player. And, and that cycle really continues. So yeah, long-winded answer, but it's a great question. 
And a great answer, really. I mean, in <laughs> such a complex situation that we're put in, because in so many other teams, as you said, like soccer, they've always been in a team. So it was right. a no-brainer that when they go to college, of course, they're on a team again. Right. But could you talk a little bit about how your coach really either, you know, was, was very invested in the social element of the team, or was she more laid back and let you handle it as the captain? I think that they're not mutually exclusive. So Allison is is very big on culture, um, and this is something I, I really respected about her right from the get-go. You know, our, our team culture wasn't in the best place, obviously, with everything that, that happened when I was a freshman. You know, having this major coaching change occur mid-season, you know, having some players transfer out, having some in. Um, so, you know, I think... Allison, honestly, I feel like her her primary goal in the beginning was to address culture, not even to address tennis. It was to address culture first. And I really can appreciate what a great move that was and recognizing how much that has to do with performance. I cannot agree more. That's something that my coach at Brown, Lucy Schmidhauser, has been super invested in team culture as well. And it makes a huge difference. It really does. Yeah, for sure. And I think it took a while. You know, it's something you can address and it's something you can focus on, but it's not something you can do overnight. I mean, at the end of the day, you, again, you have to go through time with your teammates. You have to go through experiences. You have to go through adversities. But, you know, Allison definitely prioritized that. Um, it's something we, we definitely discussed at least on a weekly basis. You know, we did a lot of, a lot of, you know, the 20 hour rule, the 20 hours that we had during the, the week, a good portion of that happened off the court. And I think that that's a really important and undervalued thing. Right. And so really looking forward for you, I guess now we're going to move back individually on the Pro <laughs> Tour. Could you give a little bit of insight into how your training regimen will shift now that you're not at USC? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the the biggest change is a good one. Um, it's having the entire day. So I was I was a bit of a psycho in college and I, I'm, I'm paying for it a little bit now. And it's funny because... Um, I'm really dorky and I, I journaled so much and I tracked so many hours of work and, and workouts and, and hits um, in this insane Google Doc and Excel sheet or Google sheet, I guess. And I just, if I wasn't in class, I was at the courts. You know, I, I would do, I would somehow find a way to play five hours of tennis while still maintaining a full course load. And I have no idea how, and I have no idea where the energy came from. And I would say I have no idea where even the body came from, but now I know it's I'm paying for it right now. Like I was very excited and I, I love the work ethic that I had. And I'm, you know, I think it's the reason why a pro career uh, became a possibility for me, but it's also why I'm injured right now, for sure. So the biggest change is having the freedom. So if I want to, I can easily do that six hour day, but it's recognizing that now that this is a career, now that this literally puts food on the table, you know, I have to be much smarter with, with my training. You know, my weeks kind of are the like standard professional tennis player block. So it's, it's about 20 hours of tennis, five hours of strength and conditioning, probably five hours of physical therapy and, and prehab or, or rehab um, with that. So I'll go you know, two days in a row, full days where there's two practices and a fitness, and then the third day is a half day. And then you repeat that day four, day five, day six, you take day seven off, and then you reevaluate based on how your body's feeling. So, you know, yeah, the, the biggest change is something where my eyes would have lit up when I was a, a junior or senior, or maybe even sophomore, just because, oh my gosh, you have the whole entire day, you can just play tennis all day, that's so fun. But um, interestingly enough, the real adjustment is now that you have the full day doesn't mean, you know, you don't get to be a little kid about this anymore. You have to be really smart about your training. You have to plan. You have to regiment. You have to 
schedule, but then you also have to maintain flexibility in that. If my body doesn't feel good, just because I have all day to play doesn't mean I should. There's actually, um, my coach used this line a lot, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, so that's a, that's a big lesson. I'm, I'm hopefully learning faster, learning the hard and painful way, but learning nonetheless. And because I've gone through this, I cannot help but ask, and feel free to answer this however you feel comfortable, but is your confidence tied to your workouts? Absolutely. We would talk about this a lot, actually, as a team um, with our sports psych department at USC, where we would discuss how confidence doesn't need to come from actual performance. You know, as much as we think confidence comes from winning, um, you know, we were kind of being trained in conditions to believe that confidence comes from repetition. So... That was something I think I really cultivated um, in college was I knew every time I stepped on any court against any person, there was no way that they had done more work than I had. Um, and I took a lot of pride in it. And it was actually a big point to my identity, I'd even say. Um, and it did really great things for me in terms of helping, you know, fuel me and, and drive me to, to being that way. But also, you know, had that, that downside of I overtrained for sure. But that being said, I'm not going to sit here and tell you winning doesn't help. You know, I haven't I haven't really competed in a very long time um, and I'm going to be soon. So for sure, there's there's an element of, wow, I I feel like I may not have the confidence yet to compete. But, you know, I, I'm trying to shift my focus to I can get my confidence in, in other areas and the work that I've put in. The attitude that I have, the work ethic that I have are, are definitely areas I can I can draw confidence from until those wins start coming. And then we can start feeling it that way as well. But for sure, I, I think it comes from the work first. And do you say that you have a perfectionist attitude on the court? Oof, I'm trying to get rid of it. Definitely still exists within me. Um, you know, I, there's, I feel like I have a lot of mottos that they change. I'd say every four weeks or maybe every good book or really good podcast from Michael Gervais I listen to. But um, one of them was to stop searching for perfect and start looking for better. So... You know, I think we all get really obsessed with, I want to have a great serve. I want to have the best serve. I want, or whatever. I want to be ranked top 10. Um, and what I've been able to do, I think, fairly well is help train myself to try to be the best at getting better over just being the best. Because if we're looking long term, if I'm better at getting better than everyone else, I might not be better than them tomorrow, but over the course of a month, three months, a year, two years, I'll, I'll continue to grow. So, um, yeah, be, being the best at, at, at getting better, um, I'd say, is one of the, the bigger things that I, I try to follow instead of be perfect. <laughs> and going off of that ritual and that motto, do you feel that really moving forward, you will bring that, that work ethic with you to the pro tour in terms of how are you going to reset your goals? Do you still want to be the best? And what does the best mean? This is funny. I actually got asked this question earlier today. I was with my chiropractor and I brought up Wimbledon and she asked me, you know, is, is that the goal for you? And it was weird because it's a simple question and I couldn't answer it. And, you know, for me, I, I feel like, yeah, I'd love to go to Wimbledon. If, if the highest I made it was Wimbledon, fantastic. If the highest I made it was all four Grand Slams, even better. So I, I don't even know what the best is. And I also know from psychology and from experience, no matter what level I got to, I'll always want more. That's just how humans are. You know, if, if I did make it to Wimbledon, I would want the French too. And then I'd want to win a couple of rounds at the French. And then I'd want the US Open. And then I'd want a Grand Slam. And then I'd want three. And that just keeps going. And that's why Novak and Roger and Rafa each have 20. And it's, you know, what makes sports so exciting for the players and for the fans. So for me, you know, I think it's, 
I know it's a cliche, but it's just maxing out what I can do, seeing how, seeing what the best I can be is. Um, and whatever that is, I'd be content with so long as I knew that it really was my best. So like I said, I, I take a lot of pride in, in my work ethic. And because I know I, I do give absolutely all of myself each and every day, you know, if this is as high as I go, if it was college for me, if I never win a match on tour, would I be disappointed? Sure. But, you know, I would know I, I maxed it out and I'd know I, I gave everything. And that, I guess, would be the best case scenario for me is knowing that uh, I really did manage to to get to the peak of, of what I could be. And I think I've also really learned how to, um, you know, again, a cliche, but really fall in love with the process or, or the journey. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant and his... Uh, retirement speech, he said it more eloquently, but kind of had a line and he was speaking to his daughters in the speech about how when you really understand it, you realize that this is the dream. It's the waking up at 4 a.m. It's those workouts when you're too exhausted to work out. It's when you don't want to train like that is actually the dream, not so much the trophies that we see on on SportsCenter and Instagram. You know, if you're only doing this to lift the trophies, if you're only doing this for the rankings and the accolades, that's fine. But at the end of the day, that's like 20 minutes of, of enjoyment. So, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but falling in love with the process is something that I work on every day and I feel like I do a pretty good job of. And, you know, at the end of the day, I so long as this is something that I can continue receiving that much joy and satisfaction from, I'll be much happier knowing I spent however many years I'm going to spend on tour loving this part than I would if someone said, hey, I can guarantee you semifinals at Wimbledon right now, sign here, but then you're done tomorrow. Or this is funny, but I kind of do a check-in every few weeks on what the last day of my life would look like. And the coolest thing about it is, is it looks like my average Tuesday. You know, it, it honestly, I would still be on a tennis court. I would still go see my coaches. I would still, you know, hit with my closest friends. I would still work out in the gym. I mean, the the bigger goal, honestly, is how long can I extend that more than it is? How high can I get my WTA ranking? I mean, that's great, too. I, I'm, you know, I'm not telling you I don't want to have, you know, I don't want to be number one in the world. Of course I want to, but I'm, I'm able, at least when I'm in a good place, to recognize this is much more important in the grand scheme of things than any ranking or any trophy is going to be. Oof. I was kind of hoping that you would keep talking because you made me tear up. <laughs> I was like, just keep talking. Just let me cry in silence. I'm a, because... I'm a bit of a romantic. In, uh, in the, that's, that's the philosophy in me, I told you. <laughs> no, because I, I'm thinking about my own experience and, and, you know, just talking to you and getting to know you. I feel like we have a we had a very similar role on our team of being the workhorse. And mm. I remember we were sitting at a team dinner once when we were um, when we were out in Texas and the girls, we were all sitting around waiting for our meal. This was before COVID when we were eating, you know, in a restaurant. Right. And <laughs> back in the old days. And we all went around and said our favorite day. Our, what, what is your dream day? That was the question was, what is your dream day? And everyone went around and I was thinking, you know, they were all coming up with the most luxurious days. And in my mind, I could not think of anything that could make me happier than just a normal day at Brown practicing. Right. And that's what I said. I said, go to class in the morning, go to practice and then do homework and grab dinner and then go to bed. And that's yeah. literally what I said. And I said to wake up at 5 a.m. because I love the 630 practices. You get it. That's the thing is, you know, everyone's going to laugh and they're going to scoff at it like, oh, please, that was your best day. But it is. And honestly, I mean, I, I really think that's the that's the key to life. That's that's the secret in, in my head. But I'm 23 and, you know, I might listen to a podcast tomorrow and I'll have a new secret. But the way I live right now, that's that's sort of it. If you can 
fall in love with the the boring part, you know, or the part that we think is is boring. If you can find something that you love so much that you can fill your that, that, that the average of it is something that can give you that much joy and fulfillment, you're really lucky. And so the fact that the fact that it's my my last day on earth is my average Tuesday is incredible. And we'll see how long it stays that way. And when it stops looking that way, I'll change careers. You know, I, I have other hobbies. I have other things. But in the meantime, you know, we'll see if that can get me through the next. If that gets me through my 20s, fantastic. That's 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 more the goal. Can, can we stay this happy and fulfilled till 30? And then we can, you know reevaluate and, and adjust. But yeah, that's, that's the secret for me. I love that. Well, I feel the same way. And although I won't be on the tennis court, my career in broadcasting, I hope will fill that void. And I love that just having, having a passion and investing all of yourself into it. I, I don't know if there's a, a higher or a, a better way to, to live than that. So yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I'm excited for you as well. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited for you. And thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Angela Kulikov, and I'm on the rise. This has been an episode of On the Rise, a tennis channel podcast in partnership with Behind the Racket and produced by Molly Scholson. Join us next time to continue our conversation about women's college tennis. This is Perry Shinen, On the Rise.